Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. And you just finished your program over the weekend? I did. Um, strengthening your container through the chakras, remembering wholeness. Remembering wholeness. Mm -hmm. Okay, right there. What does that mean, to remember wholeness? So our true nature is always whole. We cannot be anything other than whole mm -hmm. is the teaching, right? That's the to me, the ultimate teaching. We're never separate from source. We're never separate from each other. We're never separate from God, the supreme being, Ishvara, Ishvari. But we often have experiences in our lives that make us feel that we are separate, that we are broken, that we are not whole. And, or also that we are separate from other people who we love. And so... Um, I spend a lot of my time, my personal practice, and also working with other people to help remember that that is our true nature and that we truly cannot be separate. And that for me, you know, we doing the practices is part of reaching for those moments when I know that it's true that I'm whole and that I'm connected to all that is. And then we forget, you know, you remember it and then we forget unless we're enlightened beings, which I'm not yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So and then the practices help us to remember. And also so in the program, it said R.E. hyphen member and somebody in the, the program said, what, what's with the hyphen? And I said, well, if you think about remembering, the re part is a prefix. And so what is the opposite of remembering? If you look at it that way, it's dismembering and we feel you know, metaphorically, symbolically dismembered a lot of times, just torn apart. And then when we come back into our space of wholeness, then we are remembered again. So it was, and it's the first time I've done this program. So I've done three previous times a program, Yoga for Grief and Loss, which is also beautiful and profound. But this one was specific to the chakra system and using those, um, those energy bodies, the, the symbols that go along with it to facilitate that remembrance. And it was really profound. It was really intense. It was a really good weekend, beautiful. Hmm. So when we feel separate, is that an illusion? Is that not reality? So when we feel separate, does that mean we're existing under a false premise? Here's what I say about that. Um, oh gosh. So one of the things I talk about in both the programs that I do um, and with individual people is the system of the koshas. So the, the sheaths are layers of being. Um, all of, So our physical body, energy body, mental body, including that in the emotional body, our intuitive body, wisdom body, and then our bliss body, all those parts of who we are. Um feel, you know, torn apart and feel and are can be really greatly impacted by tragedies, traumas, pains, losses, griefs. And each one of those those layers of being, so in Sanskrit the, the kosha, kosha means sheath, right? The word for each of them in the center contains maya. So anamaya kosha is our physical body. And ana means food, right? So it's literally the body made of food, the sheath made of food, which I think is kind of cool. But ana maya kosha, the maya means illusion is typically how it's translated. But to me, so I'm, I'm also a, a licensed therapist. Um, and so in my business, when somebody's delusional, you know, they really truly believe that mm. it's true, whatever this thing is that is their belief, right? That's That the rest of us don't agree as part of reality. So to me, Maya is not really illusion because it's like if you go to a magic show and you see the person doing all of the, the tricks on stage, you know it's an illusion. It's really cool to see, but it's an illusion and you know it. In a delusion, you really believe that it's real. And I think just by necessity of living in the physical plane, we have to believe in the delusion that we're separate. Even when we're not in pain, right? Like you're Avi and you're over there in that chair and I'm Carla and I'm in this chair and we are not the same being. Because if we didn't believe that, we couldn't function in our own roles, you know, in this 
this role in our in our lifetimes right now. We couldn't complete our our goals. We couldn't do our do our jobs. You know, all all the job of being just who we are in general, right? So we have to believe that we're separate. And it doesn't always feel so bad, you know, for if things are going great and we feel peaceful about, you know, who we are in the world. But when things fall apart and we feel separate, feeling that that's true just feels so isolating and painful and devastating. And so then this is where, you know, the practices really come to bear because they can help us to move through pain and help us to realize that that's not the truth. You know, the truth is we are connected. We are whole. We are always part of that oneness. And that to me is just, I mean, that's beautiful. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Um, The way I personally like to look at it is that there's a a certain intimacy that we each have with our own beings, with our Mm. own bodies. Um, So the the reality of always being connected connected I think is is true, but at the same time, um, I have a relationship with with my being myself that is different than my relationship to another person or the forest or anything else like that. And so then the implications for that for me is okay. Then I have a duty to take care of this self to be mm-hmm. the safekeeper for for myself. And that's something else I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, compassion for the self. Mm. I know this is something that um, I believe you you do a lot of work with. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to say about that area? And are there a lot of challenges that you see for people to have compassion for what they're going through? Oh, absolutely. Um, and this, this comes up in every workshop that I do, and also in my private practice with people, and also in, in my personal life. <laughs> it's really hard, but mm. Several people this weekend were sharing how much they um, just have to work with that a lot and what a challenge it is to have compassion for ourselves and that it's so much easier to have compassion for others than it is for us. And I always like to share this thing. I, mean, I saw this this meme thing on Facebook a couple years ago, and it said – how long, if I asked you to make a list of all the things you love, how long would it take before you write your own name on the list? Mm. And when I read that, I just thought, oh my gosh, like truly, if I was to sit down before I read that and just keep, I don't know that I would have ever put myself on the list. And I don't have a lot of self-loathing or, you know, I don't struggle with that. But I do struggle, like a lot of us do, with self-judgment and criticism and just the way we talk to ourselves is not very nice. And when we are in pain, when we are going through painful experiences, and I work a lot with um, people who are dealing with grief and the deaths of people that they love, but this is true for any kind of traumatic event. Trauma often brings you shame and guilt and these feelings of separateness and isolation But, and we live in this world where it's not okay for people to walk around in pain. It's okay for you to be in pain for a little while, but then we need to get over it and you need to figure out how to feel good pretty quickly. And it's often not validated. And then those messages come from society, from culture, from all around, and they get into our brains as well. It's like, oh, I need to, I'm weak. I'm not doing this right. There's something wrong with me. And then we berate ourselves for being in pain and often generally for situations that we have no control over. So um, I, I will talk with people this was a challenge this weekend because it's about the chakras, but I kept like <laughs> needing to go into other things like, you know, the yama and the yama and the, the, the koshas, which were integral to this teaching about the chakras because the chakras are part of the pranamaya kosha. But anyway, we're talking about the yamas and the yamas and how, to me, the essential teaching is ahimsa. All the eight limbs are based to meet my thinking and my, the way I teach people. Everything is based in ahimsa. You can't have the rest of the eight limbs if you're not practicing ahimsa. And I often share this- And ahimsa, nonviolence. Ahimsa, thank you. Nonviolence, non-harm. And that should also be turned toward ourselves. And maybe not even also, but first, so that 
we are giving ourselves this compassion first so that we can give it back. There's a quote from Iyengar in um, The Tree of Yoga that I love, and he says, I don't know why everybody talks about all the violence in the world when we first should be looking at the violence within. Like, what is it we do to ourselves that is violent or harmful? You know, our behavior is hurting ourselves. The way we speak to ourselves is it harming ourselves. And usually that answer is yes, because we're not very nice to ourselves. And so practicing ahimsa in the form of compassion, I mean, and compassion, I think, goes hand in hand with ahimsa, but they're not exactly the same. So when I talk about compassion, I, I think it's really important how we talk about things. And I love words, too. So when you look at the word compassion, thinking about where it comes from, the root word passion is from the Latin passio, which means to suffer. And then that got, you know, turned into, I think in the maybe, I don't know, the 12th century in France, people started using it to refer to the saints who were martyred, that they suffered, and then the the passion of Jesus when he suffered. And when we think about suffering and passion, it goes hand in hand, but also that same that same root word is the root word for patience. Mm. And the prefix C-O-M means with. And so to me, it means having patience with the suffering of others, but also the suffering of our own selves, having patience with that. Because we get so impatient with ourselves that we're not growing enough, we're not over this fast enough, we're not resilient enough or strong enough or whatever, when you just can't change that. And when we have impatience and then are not practicing ahimsa when we're being violent towards ourselves or harmful towards ourselves because of our own pain, that is in no way helpful, you know? And so the practice is to say, okay, can I pause and think? And I tell people this a lot. Right now, if you can just pause in any moment of pain or suffering, get in touch with your heart energy and just say, what's the most compassionate thing I could do for myself right now? And then can you do that thing? And then learning about what is compassionate. What's the compassionate thing for you to do? And um, Kristen Neff, who is a researcher at the University of Texas, her whole research is based around self-compassion and practicing self-compassion. And she talks about two different kinds of self-compassion, yin and yang compassion. So a yin type of self-compassion is the kind most people think about of resting, stopping, getting a massage, like doing all of these like passive sort of things. But there's also the, the yin, sorry, yang compassion where you're taking action for yourself. And maybe that might mean something like tackling a mountain of work because you know it's been hanging over your head. So I'll often say to people, just set a timer for like 10 minutes and just do that for a little while and then take a break, mm. you know, and see how you, because if you can do something that's going to make your future self feel more peaceful later, that's a gift. And that's self-compassion, even though it might take some energy to get you going to do that, but can you do it? And breaking it down in little pieces, just to practice those things and having patience with and being with what is in your own suffering. And then that also translates to other people, having patience with them, which can be hard. I mean, I know because I experienced it too. When people are in intense pain and it's prolonged and protracted, people get impatient and tired of it. And the people who are in the pain get it because we're living in it and we're sick of it too, right? So we know <laughs> that you're tired of it. So it's just sort of this ongoing practice that we all need to have. So this compassion for ourselves and then compassion for each other. And hopefully, eventually, the whole world will be more compassionate. And mm -hmm. that would be nice. Right. And I think it has no bounds, as you say. Compassion for the self can even be going after those dreams that you've been repressing for sure. years and years Absolutely. to finally say, okay, now I'm going to do it. And that's going to make me a lot, feel a lot better. Exactly. Yeah. Fulfilling, fulfilling dreams and um, like finding your, like your avocation in life, the thing that fills you. Like I, I can't, well, we're talking about the koshas, the Anandamaya kosha, the bliss body. Um, I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan and he always said, follow your bliss. And I remember when I first learned about him. I was a teenager and I would just think, what does that mean? What does it mean? And then when I 
understood yoga better and I understand what that what bliss means that it's this place when you're in your bliss body it's this this place where whatever it is you're doing whatever it is you're experiencing you lose track of time you feel that connection with everything around you that you just know that you're in the flow and so I what he means is whatever it is that that puts you in that place follow that like go after that and so many people are doing nothing like that and so if you know what your blissful place is, then doing more things to put you in that place is also self-compassion and self-care. Why are so many people not doing that? Because it seems like the complete logical thing. Like if we were in charge of another being, almost all of us would give them that advice. Mm-hmm. Go after it. Right. Find your bliss. <laughs> Do it. But for ourselves, it seems to be so challenging to follow the same advice. I don't know. I mean, from a yogic perspective, I guess we could talk about, you know, samskaras and all of the 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 stories that we've been carrying for lifetimes after lifetimes and they keep replaying themselves out. Maybe that's I'm sure that's part of it. But just in this lifetime that we're living, um, context is also a big piece of it. And in our the culture we live in right now, being busy all the time is so lauded. Like it's like praise. It's this thing. Sleep is really important, mm. super important. And in our culture, it's like praised if you say, oh man, I didn't get, I got like two hours sleep last night. I banged all this stuff out and I just got all, my, all this stuff done. It's like, yeah. And then you're you're harming yourself through that. You know, and I think that that whole idea of do, 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 keep doing more, doing more, doing more. And I, I, I'm guilty of it too. And I, I told, cause there'll be people who might see this and go, oh, well, she's a hypocrite, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cause I'm always doing stuff. And I've gotten to where when people ask me, oh, how's it going? And the first thing I want to say is, oh, it's really busy. I don't even want to say that because a lot of people then will go, oh, that's good though. I don't know how good that is. I mean, mm-hmm. I do feel like there's a lot that I have to do in the world and that I want to do and more things to just expand the way I'm working in the world. But also you have to stop and take care of yourself and take care of you know the people who are closest to you. And all of that is a balance, which again, like that's yoga is all about balance, finding the sweet spot. Like even in asana, when I teach asana, I'll, I'll make sure people understand asana means a steady, comfortable pose. But when Patanjali talks about asana, it's the sthira and the sukha and the, the steady place and the comfortable, soft, the easeful place. But that word sukha is a, a root word for sucrose, which is sugar. So I always like to say it's like the sweet spot where you have effort, but also ease and comfort. And can you find any amount of ease or any amount of comfort, not just in this posture we might be practicing on a mat, but in your life? So where is the sweet spot in that balance of busyness and doing and contributing even? If you're doing good things, awesome, but you can't keep doing that. You have to pause, Right. I, I consider what is the drive there? Uh, what's the motivation for for us mm-hmm. to get into that habit of of being so busy and telling other people that we're busy and taking on more than we can do um, and not sleeping enough and, and all of that. And the answer that comes to me is because it's cool. <laughs> Right. And I think that's actually a really big drive that we have is we want to be cool. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not I don't mean like this hip way the teenagers want to be cool necessarily, but, you know, socially accepted and praised and Mm -hmm. and all of that by others. So even at the detriment to our ourselves. Right. And for whatever reason, it doesn't seem that our culture prioritizes true self-care that if that was the cool and and maybe that's the shift that needs Mm. to take place in in order to motivate people maybe that will become cool now to actually say you know i i I spent half of the day following my heart and doing things that um connect with my my bliss self right that'd be awesome well and i think because i've i see some of that so i mean i was when you're saying what you were just saying i was thinking about social media right that's such a huge piece of it and, and again, all that stuff is an invitation, too, to ask us to take stock of, like, where we're expending our energy. 
and how we're expending our energy. How is it useful? How is it not useful? And what's our motivation? Um, have self-awareness. Like all these yoga things are going through. Like that's Fadiyaya, that mm-hmm. self-awareness and self-inquiry and asking yourself, you know, what, what, why am I doing this? You know, what's the purpose? Am I doing it just to be cool or wh- what is it and where's the balance in my life? And it's an ongoing challenge. But yeah, but in certain circles, because, um, you know, I follow a, y- a lot of yogis and a lot of people who kind of think the same way I do, which isn't always a good thing. Mm. You need a broader perspective. But I see a lot of that. Like you'll see people putting up Instagram pictures and then they'll write a thing about how much they've taken care of themselves and they get a lot of likes for that and a lot of hearts and comments. And so maybe some of it's shifting. I don't know. I hope so. Mm. Uh, that would be really nice. And then sometimes too, just taking a step back from all of that and just taking the time. Like at Satsang last night, I was thinking, I need to come and do a silent retreat. I just need to come where and be where I'm not talking and nobody's listening to me and I get really in touch with what's actually happening inside. I need to do that, I think. And I wonder how many of us really need to do that and how many people in our culture ever actually do that Mm. to just stop and be quiet and not perform and not do and not be busy and not continue to, to try to be cool. You probably don't have to try to be cool at a silent retreat. No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gonna that's like on my list now of something I really need to get. I wanna do that in the next year. I've never been on a silent retreat. It's amazing how popular they're getting too. I know. i yeah. I hear people tell me all the time and everybody's like, Oh, have you done it? And I'm like, No, and people seem surprised that I've not done it. I don't but I'm and I'll tell you, like per, just personally, whenever I've thought about doing a silent retreat, it kind of scares me because <laughs> I talk a lot. Mm. I'm not really scared about being inside myself. I've been there a lot and I know I know there's scary places in there and I I don't mind them. But it's just this idea of oh my gosh, I can't talk. I just wonder how and that to me seems like a good challenge I should take on and like why is that so important to me to just like keep it quote you know and not and what that means to me that I'm always like running my mouth. Mm. <laughs> you know, perhaps it's an addiction. You know, that's what I think is that you know we're know. we're all addicted in a way to words, or many of us are ad- addicted to words. Um, and then the self care would be taking the time um, to change and to experience something different. You know, for a few days. And then uh, I'm very interested in this is is uh, like discipline, which actually frees us, right? Mm. Like, so that's the idea behind discipline. I create the disciplines I want. I'm not going to speak for a few days. Um, but the idea behind it is order in order to liberate myself more. Because once I, I do that and go through that, then I'm not going to be as uh, um, stuck mm. to my need to, to speak, right? And then my relationship with words will even be transformed perhaps a bit yeah i'm really curious about it because i've been thinking about it for a long time but at satsang last night i just really thought i that's i know that i need to do that and i think it can, it'll be a really interesting thing for me and then okay i'll ask you about this too the you know the i need to do that versus <laughs> the the i want to do that or i'm interested in that right. right and and is this something that happens internally with ourselves too Right, that that's the first thing, and to say, okay, I need to do mm. whatever it is that mm. I need to do, and then maybe you catch yourself saying that, and you're like, oh, what is that there? That need to do? Can I flip that over a little bit and say, well, it might be fun if I did that? Yeah. Well, this is so I'm thinking in my head as we're talking about the the program I just did, and just in terms of talking so the the throat chakra vish, it, the, the sanskrit word for it is vishuddha which means to purify and part of what the throat chakra is about i mean most of the time if you look it up or read about it it's always about speaking your truth and communicating right but it is also about being quiet and listening and taking in information and it just sort of crossed my mind that 
that would be a good, I think it would be a good thing for my energetic center of the throat to experience. And then this whole idea of like want to, need to, have to, and looking at what those things mean. We talked about that in the program this weekend. That's very much a Manipura chakra, the solar plexus chakra uh, of self confidence, but also like your idea of self and your self-worth of having to do something versus wanting to do something and where we put our, our energy out into the world. And that's a really interesting idea what you're saying of like thinking about when we, and I have an exercise actually that um, we didn't get to, but it is in the book and writing down all the things, making a list of all the things you have to do. And then looking at it and thinking, well, why do I have to do these things? And then how would you feel if you flipped it and said, I want to do this? Does that change your feeling about it? You know, is there like an aversion? I don't want to do that. Or, oh, yeah, I do want to do that. I have to, but it's something I want to do as opposed to I do not want to do that. And how is it serving you? Just to look at those things. And I think you're right. And that's interesting because I didn't even pay attention to how I said it. I need to. Why do I need to? I think I, I felt this sense of, um, I think I said I need to because I don't know what that would be like. I think it would be a challenge. I'm sure it would be a challenge for me to not speak for several days. Um, and why is that? You know, like my whole life, even in like grade school, it's like, Carla does really well. She doesn't work up to her potential, but she talks a lot. She talks too much in class. You know, it's like all these things. It's like whoever you were in third grade, you're still that person. Mm, for sure. Right? <laughs> in so many ways. But so why, what is that? Why do I do I do that? You know, what's it serve? And what if I didn't? Well, I think it's, a, it's an example of what we started talking about, right? Is this what the tendency is to kind of be hard on ourselves and the inner dialogue that's that's happening right and how do we shift that that inner dialogue because mm. that that's what you were sharing before is that we're really you know hard on ourselves and we berate ourselves inside and we speak we have an inner dialogue that we would most likely never say to other people but mm. somehow it's okay to say that to right. ourselves why is that okay to to be so mean to ourselves sometimes yeah well i think a lot of times you know those messages we tell ourselves are things that we've heard from other people in our past mm. um and, and internalizing those messages parents teachers spiritual leaders in our past and then we've said oh that's true about me that's stuff we can work through but the to me the way i the way i did it myself the way i got better at at how i talk to myself and how i teach my uh, clients and students is meditation because when we get quiet you know when we try to settle our mind down then it like acts up and it'll start talking to us and we get better at being able to notice it so we say oh, okay here's that mind no thank you i don't need that right now i'm doing this right now I'm focusing on my mantra or whatever your focus focus is. I'm I'm practicing right now. Here comes the voice again, learning to gently say no, thank you, with compassion, you know, and as little judgment as possible. Like that's the that's the challenge. Um, but when we do that, so when we practice how, for however long five minutes, fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, and we sit there and we practice that practice we're done with our practice, we go about our day, we are so much better and adept at hearing that voice when it comes up. And then since we've already been practicing it in meditation, we can say, not right now. Or you can catch yourself and say, you know what, that is not true. And if I'm practicing ahimsa toward myself, I'm not going to be violent in my words toward myself. And I will a lot of times, I'm much better than I used to be. I used to be really terrible to myself. But I'll still say things to myself like, that was stupid. And then I'll stop and I'll just be like, no, that is not stupid. You're not stupid. You just made a mistake. Mm. And sometimes I'll even say, you need to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do it. It's really healthy to talk to yourself. Yeah. In a and, nice way. Mm -hmm. And maybe the next step, too, is to positively reinforce yourself when you catch yourself mm -hmm. in those in those moments. Uh, something that I learned when I was a kindergarten teacher was the power of positive reinforcement mm. with the students that is way more powerful of a force 
to reinforce the the good behavior as opposed to be critical of the negative Absolutely. behavior. Well, all the research shows that. Too. All the research mm. shows that. So why would it be different with ourselves? And then it becomes this <laughs> right. really interesting thing. It's like, whoa, I caught myself that time. This is the first time I ever caught, caught myself, you know, in that kind of a, a, a spin. Isn't that great? Okay, try to do it again. Yeah, you know? totally. Well, you know, that's like, well, it's not, Kristen Neff doesn't talk about it in terms of positive reinforcement, but when you're, the way she talks about how to practice self-compassion, it's really pretty simple. The first key is that you have to notice that you're not being compassionate, first of all, which meditation does help us with that because it helps us to be able to notice these things. Because honestly, like most of the, we're, we're talking to ourselves constantly all day. And most of the time, whatever we're saying to ourselves is generally not true, but often we don't even notice it. But your your mind and your feeling, your, your brain is still registering it. And then feelings are happening as a result of what we're saying to ourselves. Thoughts come before feelings. And then they all get all tangled up together. But you can see this on a functional MRI. When you look at the brain, a cognition happens and then a feeling occurs around it or about it or whatever. And then we have another thought about that thing and it's just ongoing. So you first have to notice. And then the second thing that, that, that Kristen Neff says is that we pause and have to say, you know what? All humans suffer. I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one or the first one. And it's part of humanity, this shared common humanity. And then the next thing you do is to do something compassionate for yourself. And it can be just as simple as just, you know, just giving yourself a little hug, you know, or saying it's okay. And to me, that's positive reinforcement, right? And so when we say mean things to ourselves, that's not being compassionate. And it is, in fact, a moment of suffering. Stephen Levine says that, that I love his definition, that it is suffering is when we want something to be other than what it is, or we want to be somewhere that we're not. And that pretty much covers everything. Mm. And when you're being mean to yourself, clearly, you know, you, you want to be some some way other than you are. And that's suffering. And to just to pause and say, gosh, look what I'm doing to myself. And to know you're not the only one that's ever done that. Probably we're all guilty of that. And we've all done that to ourselves. And you're not really a bad person. We're shared, we, this is part of being human. And then to just to give yourself that reinforcement of, okay, I caught myself. I'm going to do better next time and give myself some love around it. And then you set those new patterns, hopefully, and maybe create change. Mm. I think so. I like to look at the, the root of things. So here, the root belief is whether or not human beings genuinely practicing self-care is the most important thing that we can do mm. for the world, right? So if yeah. there was a whole population full of people who practice genuine self-care, what would that world look like? And so asking that question, Right. Okay. Maybe, maybe I believe it wouldn't make a difference. That wouldn't help things at all. Or maybe I believe that if everyone did that and just took care of themselves better, many of our problems would work themselves out because you would have secure human beings practicing genuine self love. And then also, too, if I love myself, that's not an ego thing or a superiority right. thing. Do I believe that if I do that, I will then have the capacity to share more of that love with, with others. And if I am not loving myself, then does that cut down on my capacity to genuinely mm. love other people? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So I think the key there is genuine self-love, right? Because who knows what a lot of people's definition of self-love might be or taking care of yourself. Um, that might be to some people, and I'm and I'm sure genuinely people might think, well, that makes me selfish because you hear that a lot. It's selfish to do that, but it's not. So it's the connotation around you know words that have these negative, these negative um, sort of vibes, right? Of being selfish, but is it selfish? Because just like you said, if we all genuinely were practicing that kind of self love, then what you're putting in is going to be what comes out. 
Makes sense to me. Yeah. The other thing that I've found too is that if I'm in service to someone else, that is another aspect of self-care, mm. self-love. Like I'm not doing that in order to drain myself because um, it's going to make me feel a lot worse. I don't – that will just burn people out right. if you do that. Maybe you'll be successful in the very short-term period of time. But again, that's a root belief is service good for myself? And I think many of the many of the research studies that that I've seen actually is that when when people are really, I'd like to ask you this question if you found this too. When people are experiencing um, grief, that one of the best things that they can do is find someone else who's suffering as as well. Oh sure. Well, support groups are incredibly helpful. Yeah, they helped me a lot. Um, and then. You, you're able to go into a place where you feel seen and heard and you don't feel so isolated. You're able to – so one, you you're, you see your own pain reflected so you're not alone. But also typically in support group situations, you see people who are further down the path mm-hmm. and you see, oh, well, they survived this. That's hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, they did it. I can do that. I mean, sometimes that's how people feel. Often that's how people feel. I'm not saying always because, I mean, I've certainly known people who doubt that they're going to be able to be that far down the path. But usually they end up that far down. I mean, and I get it. Like I remember thinking things like hearing about somebody being, you know, eight years into their grief in the in my early, early, like first year and thinking, oh, my gosh, eight years. I can't even imagine like being doing this for eight years. It's like overwhelming. So, but then now it's been 14 years and Mm. so it's, I don't know. It's just a really interesting unfolding, but yes, being around other people and also service to others. So in my first book, well, it's actually the second book, but the, the first, the second book about yoga for grief and loss, each chapter is about a different branch of yoga and how the practices of that particular branch can be very, very helpful and supportive in um, dealing with grief and loss. And in the karma yoga chapter, I talk about that and I drew on research. There's not a lot of research around volunteerism and bereavement, but there's a lot of research on volunteerism and depression and anxiety. And those things are not the same. But if you look at just the symptomology of the what depression looks like and what grief looks like, they're they're almost identical. There's a big difference in causality. You know, clearly there's this cause over here that has created this um, state of being for a person, but they're experiencing a lot of the same things. And the research around, and also just lived experience also shows me what, how it helps people. But what the research shows is that it is extremely helpful for helping people feel better just about themselves and about where they are in the world, about giving to others. And for bereaved people, often when they do volunteer work and service work, it's also in honor of the person they love who has died. And then that helps to create this connection to this beloved person, and which is also incredibly healthy. Like To me, one of the biggest things we have to do when we're grieving is figure out how you continue to have a relationship with somebody who is not physically present in this world because Mm. you still have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do because all the ways that we know to have relationship with people are physically based. I mean, there's some non-physical, there's energetic and spiritual stuff, but really when somebody's 100% gone from here, You realize how much of it was physical, the touching of that person, their smell, knowing when you speak, you know, I I know you can hear me right now. I know I'm without a doubt. I know you're hearing me. We can say, and we do talk to our, our beloved dead people, but there's always this thing that's like, can you really hear me? You know, it's hard. It is so hard to, to, to have those, those interactions and relationships. So, and just this, this, just the sensory thing of, I just want to hug you one more time. That feeling and all it really like brings brings you to this place of how how physical we really are living mm. in this physical world. And it's really difficult 
We don't have any models other than, you know, our relationship with God or the divine. And it and this is where bhakti yoga comes into play, really, of having this relationship. And bhakti yoga is this really great model. And it's based on really human relationship models, too. Um, you know, friend to friend, lover to lover, parent to child, how, how people interact with the divine in these different ways. It's it's a two-way street. And, and that was one of the things for me because also – what happens when you live through this major, major kind of tragedy is that you question all your beliefs. Mm. And often we end up feeling separate from God, from source, and it's it's a devastating feeling. And for me, turning to bhakti practices was really helpful in a lot of ways. And initially, like I could not, this is just my experience, like I could not pray because I was felt separate. I felt disconnected and I was really angry, but I could talk to my child. Right. And if God is love, which I do believe that I don't know what God is, but that's my core belief is that God is love and love is the biggest force in the universe. And I would talk to my child and I could feel that love and love is a two way street. So if we love people, we love God, we love God, we love people. Eventually I I felt that that love will get me through and then I'll find my way out of this dark night. And I did, it was a long, long time, but I did because I thought God's there, then God's there. God's fine with me being angry or whatever, focusing my love toward him and also chanting. Chanting was hugely helpful for me. Bhakti practice. Because it bypasses, you know, all of the the stories I'm telling myself about how um, cheated I am and how, you know, that wasn't fair and why me, all the things, which are totally normal, also fine. I still think it's not fair. But it bypassed all of that just straight to the love, you know. So it's just really interesting. I don't know how I got on that topic. How did mm. I get on that topic? How did we get on this topic? I'm not sure. But me neither. So that relationship with your son that you're still having now, would you be able to describe how that has um, evolved since he's passed? That's a really good question because it has. It's really interesting. Um, And that's good. Like I want that. That's that's great because if he was here, clearly my relationship to him would have been changing, right? Because he Mm. was a baby. He was nine months old when he died of a brain tumor. And – um, for a really long time, like I couldn't see him any other way than a baby. Although like my sort of energetic per- perception of him was much larger than that. Like he's not a baby, you know, he's this amazingly large like soul that, you know, happened to be in a baby body at the time. And then, and I, and I hope this is true. My belief is when, when we die, like we just, all of our, you know, glory is released and that we can see and hear and know and experience things in a, in a far more elevated way than we ever could in these containers. So he's not a baby, right? And I, in fact, I see him as a sort of a, a guide, not sort of, but a guy, one of my guides through life. Mm. But I couldn't envision him any other way um, and until like eventually, like six years later, um, when he would have been six, I could see him older. And that was really interesting. It was shocking, but I could see it. And then ever since then, I can see, and now he would be 15 on his birthday in May, and I can imagine what he might, I can't really see his face, but his body and all these things. And in fact, I I shared in our circle um, a meditation yesterday. I was at Chidambaram, and I just, for for part of the meditation, I, I just was suddenly like in my mind transported this like a be- really beautiful deck on a cabin in a high mountain looking at a sunset and, and Gurudev was sitting next to me, which was really cool. And I wanted to ask him all these questions and he, he just said, no, no. And I just mm. kept trying to talk, like the talking. And he said, no. And I just kept, I just kept mm. on. And then he just like touched my wrist and he said, no. And so then I got quiet. And I just looked at the sunset and then I realized that my son was there and he had his head in my lap and I still couldn't see his face, but I knew he was there and I just sat in the, that feeling and it was really beautiful. And so it has changed, 
early on, I would get, I have all these stories about dragonflies are our symbol, um, but they were everywhere and I, they showed up right when I needed them and it was so amazing. And in the, the chakra book, I, in the third eye chapter, I have a lot of these stories, not just mine, but loads of stories of people who had these amazing experiences, which I think is facilitated through the Ajna chakra, the third eye space. Um, but the further out I got, and I think the more I was growing in my own grief, like we grow and get stronger, I didn't need all of those physical things. But then what happened more is I was able to feel like I can communicate in meditation with him and just be in that heart space with him without without the pain as much, even though I still miss him and long for him, like that's never going to go away. But that just like heart-wrenching pain is not the same. And I'm able to be in that space now. And that's, that's different, but it's still part. And then in terms of our, my life here, um, he's very much a part of our family. You know, we talk about him, we celebrate his birthday, there's pictures of him everywhere. We, it's just part of our lives now, which I think it should be, you know, um, we don't, there's no such thing as closure. Mm. People that we love continue mm. to be part of our lives and they should be. Mm. And I know that it's uh, not the same for everyone, but do you have anything to share um, in regard to how to speak with someone if you're not the person who's mm. experienced it uh, and a friend of yours or whoever it is that has experienced uh, some kind of a loss? Because I think the the tendency quite often is to avoid it because it's uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. But from my recent experience, I've learned that many people who've experienced some kind of loss – really yearn mm. to speak about it. And it's a great gift that we can give them to hold space for that and be be there with them and ask them questions about it. Mm. But it's a little bit scary territory, I think, for oh, it's many pretty, people. It's very right? scary. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, and it is hard. There's a, I can, we could make a huge long list of things don't say, right? Yeah. I'll tell you this right now. No <laughs> platitudes. Like, it's not helpful. Yeah. All the things like they're in a better place, it's not helpful. Or it was their karma, not helpful. Even if you believe that's true, and even if the person believes it's true, it's still not helpful. <laughs> it's just not. Everything happens for a reason. No, it's just don't. That's not helpful. And again, with words, sorry, I just have to say, because this is a great example of, you know, the way that we cling to words, because you don't actually have to say anything. No, you don't. Right? And that's when we get ourselves in trouble in a lot of ways when we we speak what we don't even really mean mm. a lot. Sorry, continue. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're totally right. And that happens because people are uncomfortable. Yeah. And so one, a very good thing to say is, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I'm so sorry for you, for your loved one. I just hate that this has happened to you. Do you want to talk about it? And then like let them, you know, only if you can let them say that, right? Mm. If you can allow them. And and this is where what you're saying about people being uncomfortable, that's exactly what it's about. Their discomfort because it's, it's scary. Mm. And because when you're with somebody who's had a horrific loss, then you know that somewhere in your mind that could happen to me too and you're very scared on some level and people may not even realize it like it might be even sub a subconscious thing maybe some people will disagree with me but I've seen this for so long now and it and experienced it what I came to understand is people say and I think when people say things most of the time they really mean well and they want to help the person that they care about, but they're usually talking to make themselves feel better because they are supremely dis uncomfortable, right? They just don't know how to be, and whatever they're saying is making them potentially feel a little better. So really, you know, everything that I teach and everything that I learned is based on Sutra 2.1, 
where it says tapas, svadhyaya, ishvari pranidhana, kriya yoga. And to me, like that can be applied to our entire lives. And tapas literally translates as heat. It's fire. And it can be this good fire that causes things to grow, but it can be literal fire that's painful. When we go through tapas and then having svadhyaya is having this self-awareness around it. Yes, spiritual study of spiritual texts, but if you don't have self-awareness and self-inquiry around, you don't even, it doesn't matter what you're reading, you know? So the self-awareness part comes, I think, ahead of this study of spiritual text. So when we're dealing with tapas of any kind, then we can apply self-awareness of, okay, I recognize I feel really uncomfortable. Um, what's happening inside of me? How is this making me feel? And then surrendering. Is Fari Pranidhana surrendering to this thing that's bigger than you? Is yoga in action? Kriya yoga. And yoga means wholeness. Like then you're helping helping create the wholeness there, you know, for yourself, between you and another person. So, and this is true for the grieving person as well as for somebody that, the, the, the helping person. The tapas is the pain and the discomfort. And then Svadhyaya is trying to have this self-awareness around it and be in your discomfort with some kind of ease, right? To try to allow yourself to just be there and then the surrendering to this thing that's much larger than you. Hmm. And for a person who's trying to help another person in pain, that formula, so to speak, can really help when the tapas is their pain and then your discomfort, oh my gosh, like what do I do with this? Let me have a lot of self, I really want to say something. Let me have some self-awareness around that. Why do I want to say that? Is it going to help me? Is it going to help them? What's happening there? Like why do I feel the need to, to say this thing or say anything at all? You know, if I sit in silence with this person, let me notice my discomfort and have some awareness around that. Why do I feel so discomfort? Well, is it because I'm scared? Is it because it's bringing up my my previous losses? Is it bringing... It takes a lot of awareness to, to be able to manage these things and practice, you know? And then, of course, the surrendering to that because we can't necessarily fix it in the moment. It's just uncomfortable. Can we just surrender to that? Hmm. And I promise you, if you can do that then you do reach this this space moment, this tiny little moment of wholeness. And if you're help, trying to help somebody in grief and you can do that for them, you are a huge and rare gift. Mm -hmm. Those people who can sit with your discomfort and tolerate their own discomfort in your pain and just be present with their own awareness around it are rare people. Mm -hmm. and huge gifts to suffering people. So that's, that's my advice. Mm. It's not easy. Yeah. I know it's not easy. I wanted to ask you also about our culture's tendency perhaps to avoid the nature of reality. Um, <laughs> right. So I think, right, often we have, a, we have expectations. We'll have a certain amount of years that, you know, we won't be the ones to experience tragedy, mm. so to speak. Right. And nature, for whatever reason, maybe doesn't have the same relationship with death as we human beings do. Well, that's true. You know? Oh yeah. Well, oh, trying to, how do I, well, so what's the question? <laughs> uh, hmm. The question is just, have you, you know, have you noticed this and do you think it's healthy and it is an important part of leading a healthy life to acknowledge the impermanent nature of, of whatever it is? Um, and, and will that bring us more into the present of, of feeling grateful for the moments that we have all the time, knowing that we're not entitled to a certain amount of time uh, of life or with the people that we care about mm -hmm. or any of that. All we know is right now, here, this moment. Oh, yeah. 
Well, yeah, it can, you know, make us more grateful to be in the present moment, to have time with the people that we love. And this time on earth, right, it can make us that way. The the Buddhists have a whole dedicated practice. Well, Tantra Yoga is is about knowing about that the death that's present in all of life. It's part of life. It's a yoga practice. Um, in Tantra yoga, a lot of the rituals used to be performed or maybe still are in uh, burial grounds and in crematory spaces to as a reminder of this is just a limited time engagement, right? And nobody gets out alive. And then it makes you all of the um, the Day of the Dead, the Dia de los Muertos practices in South America and Mexico, that the focus is on that. Uh, uh, and it's becoming more uh, known about in America. Um but it's not not everybody really understands it. They think it's creepy with all the skeletons and but it's not. Like it's really this acknowledgement of that death is coming for everybody and has already for our ancestors that we're that we're honoring in, in this holiday, this period of time. And the sugar skulls are sugar because life is sweet and it's brief. Mm. You know, that's why they that all exists. But in, in our culture, you know, in Western culture, then it's not as acknowledged and there's so much fear around it. Well, we're this like, you know, youth, youth worshiping, death denying culture and grief denying as well because of fear. And so certainly if we can spend time contemplating those things, being around death, but first you have to get over your discomfort. It's really scary. Mm -hmm. And then acknowledging it and, and also giving it the respect that it deserves. I mean, it's not a, like, oh, yeah, death comes to everybody. It's, like, n- not a big deal. It is. You know, it's profound. And just watching the cycles of nature. which In my in my therapy practice, you know, I see people starting in September because the light is changing. I just feel really down. You know, no, you, what's happening is that your your energy is moving inward, just like the earth. All of the earth is going inward and contracting during the winter season. We're supposed to be doing it too, but we don't. We live in a culture that acts like it's July all the time. Mm. Like it's constant summertime and constant, you know, life and, you know, light and abundance and all. And that's not true all the time. Sometimes everything goes inward and rests and dies, you know, and we're, we're part of the earth, but we seem to have forgotten that, Mm. you know, we are, we're not separate from it. We are still part of it, but we want to pretend that we're not. And when we can just sit, if you can spend time in nature, you watch this cycle happen. If you, you know, watch an, an animal, find a, a dead squirrel in the forest, you can see just to sit and contemplate it. Like some people are like, oh, I don't want to see that. It's aversive, right? But then like that's the same invitation to practice the mm. Sutra 2-1. Okay, that tapas that is your aversion and your disgust, what's that about? You know, can I just look at that? I mean, you don't have to sit down and stare at the squirrel for days, but just notice it. What is that about? You know, what if you did? I know people who won't even go into cemeteries because it's so creepy. (laughs) You know, it's just, I don't want to be around all those dead people. I'm thinking specifically about a person. I worked with a a client um, who needed transportation and her mother had died. And the cemetery was really close to my office. So we spent... A lot of our sessions going up to the cemetery and we would take the transportation that she needed to use to get back and forth. And the, the woman was the same woman that drove the van all the time. And she's like, I don't know how y'all stand going in there. You can't get me to go in there. And I was like, why don't you come with us today? No, 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 no. So scared. Hmm. And I was just like, you know what? This is not my job right now. I'm just, no. <laughs> she can just be scared. But I found it very sad, hmm. you know, because I was thinking to myself, what is she going to do when somebody she loves dies? Right. That's going to be, whew. You know, so, so many people are so afraid. And I get it. I understand. But you're right. When we do take the time to notice it and to honor it and to acknowledge that it's part of the cycle, we can be more grateful for the time that we have. And even if you do believe in lifetime after lifetime, you only get to be this lifetime, this one time. You know, it's different every time. Only once do you get to be in that body and be this Avi. Appreciation, you know, gratitude. 
Um, it seems so common to, <laughs> I'll say it, I want to make a t-shirt that says, you know, beware of children over the age of 30. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's really feels like it's the norm a lot to avoid and kind of just, I, I call it leading a spoiled life, entitled life. Mm. And not to say that I'm separate from it, but I'm actively trying to to work to to right. not be that way. At least setting it as a goal to appreciate, you know, every day that you have water and food and so true. it's comfortable and shelter and you can just go on and on and on. I mean, that's that's just the truth. Yeah, you're right. So. We're lucky. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really I really appreciate it this I time. I so appreciate being here with you. Mm. Thank mm. you. Om Shanti. Om Shanti. Shanti Shanti. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe. <laughs>